No one likes to feel stuck, especially by your cloud. But the IBM cloud is the most open and secure public cloud for business. It can manage all your apps and data anywhere. Smart loves problems. IBM, let's put smart to work. Visit ibm.com slash flexible. Welcome to The Sporting Life with Jeremy Schapp. Over the next hour, the executive producer of a new HBO series discusses how viewers will get an inside look at four major college football teams. There's a lot of real-time drama that occurs just in following the daily lives of the people involved with these programs. It's uh, four different approaches with four different head coaches. And soccer historian Simon Critchley explains what makes Leo Messi one of the greatest players of all time. I always think Messi is the player of the slow-mo replay, and then you see what he's done. When you watch it live, you don't really see what Messi's done. It's when you see him on the slow-motion replay and you see how he made space, laid the ball off, you know, scored from 30 yards with almost no backlift. Plus, former Michigan Wolverine Braylon Edwards explains why his alma mater isn't competing for national championships. When you watch Oklahoma, when you watch the Clemson, Alabama, Georgia, when you watch these teams, you see something that has a potential to be there at the end of the year. When you watch Michigan, you have the same question each year. Who's going to be the quarterback? Who's going to run the ball? Michigan hasn't had that offensive stud. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Here's Jeremy Schapp. Welcome to another edition of The Sporting Life. Later in the show, we'll be speaking with a former Michigan and NFL receiver, Braylon Edwards, who has some very pointed comments about his old college program, which right now, of course, is struggling. But first, we start off today with one of our favorite return guests. He is the author of Upon Further Review, The Greatest What-Ifs in Sports History. He is the host of the GIST podcast from Slate. It's a pleasure to welcome back to The Sporting Life, the one and only Mike Pesca. Mike, thanks for being with us. Oh, thank you for inviting me on. Mike, you are a Queens native, uh, like someone else who dominates the discourse in this country right now. And, and, uh, you know, the Mets, the Mets were playing in meaningful games up until this very week. As someone mm. from the borough, did that surprise you? Well, let me just correct you. I, I'm Queens adjacent. The exact place I'm from, you're, Unless there's some variation or you have a parent uh, mm -hmm. impressing upon you to do mm -hmm. otherwise, you become a Mets fan, a Jets fan, and a Knicks fan. Right. So when you say, were you surprised they were playing meaningful games? At this point, if any of my teams are playing meaningful games in the second half of the season, it's a joy and a wonder. And there, were, there was a fantastic two- or three-week period of the Mets season which was meaningful, mm -hmm. where there was a hot streak, which gave me hope and life. But I still get the impression that they're wasting the greatest pitching, the greatest starting pitching talent of this, I don't know, generation, but Jacob deGrom. And they have in uh, Pete Alonzo, one of uh, the future great home run hitters. And I don't know that they're putting around him, meet or them, uh, important enough parts to get the job done so that it's not just the meaningful games in September, but actual games in October. We're speaking with Mike Pesca. He is the host of the Slate podcast, The Gist, among many other hats that he wears in this industry, truly is a, a man of many media. Uh, and Mike, you know, I, I think, you know, let's, I, I don't know why we're talking about the Mets other than the fact that you're not from Queens and I'm not from Queens, <laughs> but, um, 
you know, you know, people forget they were the World Series four years ago. And they were arguably, even though they lost in five games, the better team in that World Series, better than the Kansas City Royals. I mean, or at least mm-hmm. they should have won that series. So we're not talking about the Jets or the Knicks. I mean, the Jets haven't been in a title game in their sport since I was born and I'm 50 years old. The Knicks haven't, uh, haven't been any good since 20 years ago when they reached the finals against the Spurs. You know, the, the, the Mets get a lot of grief. But, you know, I'm not greedy. I look back at those last few months of the 2015 season after they got Cespedes, and they were they were practically invincible back mm-hmm. then up until the World Series. And so I'm okay with that. I'm okay. I don't, I don't understand people who need their teams to be good all the time. Oh, I agree with that. There is – and I think uh, a sense of haplessness uh, gets foisted upon them mainly because – well, two big reasons. One, they're in New York, so they're in the gla- the, the glare of the media and just people who like baseball. Uh, there are more baseball fans in New York than any other city because there are more people in New York than any other city. Second big thing is they have had more than their share of uh, horrible signings, horrible mm-hmm. mishaps, mm-hmm. bad managers, uh, Bernie Madoff scandals, you know, That's true. A, a, a mascot who's missing fingers. Okay, Fair maybe point. I shouldn't put him in there. <laughs> but they're and he's used them inappropriately, not just missing that is the correct. ones that he yes. has, that he <laughs> still one, has. I mean, yeah, we're, of his of his uh, three fingers, is it? Yeah, one his no of his four fingers. One was used inappropriately, which right. I said to myself, how could you say he gave him the middle finger if you have four fingers? But the point is well, that I, it, yeah. it used to be the Cubs were clearly the worst, and since they've been good, they, they had a somewhat of a disappointing year this year, but since they won the World Series recently, you know, who is the worst? Who's the go-to joke of baseball? I don't know if it's not the Mets. Wow. Wow. I mean, they, they're a 500 team this year, above 500, with a guy who hit 51 home runs. As we speak on Thursday, he might yet break the record. We're speaking with my, for rookies, of course. Aaron Judge holds it with 52 as of Thursday morning, which is when we're speaking, but you're not listening. We're speaking with Mike Pesky. He's the host of The Gist Podcast. Uh, and, and Mike, I, you know, I did want to get your thoughts because I think it's, it's complicated. The other night, the Nationals clinched a playoff berth. Okay. It yeah. so happens that they did it while they were playing, uh, the Philadelphia Phillies and Bryce Harper, uh, you know, who, who rejected, uh, offers to stay in Washington, who, you know, Moved in division up the eastern seaboard over the course of, uh, last off, last off season. And we don't know exactly what was said. Harper said the fans went too far, that they crossed the line. It's hard for us to judge because again, it's Thursday morning. We don't know what they said. And there is such a thing as crossing the line. But if you're a Nationals fan and you get to see your team clinch against the guy who went away, who was the cornerstone of that franchise for nearly a decade, what feelings are you entitled to? I think that in deep down and in the id of the fan, mm. you, boo, you boo the guy who left, who turned his back on you. Right. But if you were just to analyze it based on what would you do if he was your brother or son? Would you advise the guy to blindly stay with the franchise or maybe to follow his uh, wanderlust to get more money? Um, to put himself in a better situation. He knows what the Nationals have been since he's been there, and he perceived them, and I think there's a lot of evidence to this, as being you know, suboptimal and maybe a little dysfunctional. 
just because they clinched a wild card spot doesn't mean they're not. You know, what if they get swept which, or lose at a one-game playoff? Does that mean that Bryce Harper was wrong? So that'd be my answer. Fans are going to boo the guy who turned his heel, but I think in reality that doesn't mean he made an actual heel turn. Before we let you go, Mike, the Jets, this whole oh. Adam Gase thing, How do you assess his body language? Yeah, he does not seem to be an inspired or inspiring figure. Yeah. Um, They did have, you know, I think I'll look back on this year uh, to the first three quarters of the Bills game as a time of hope, (laughs) (laughs) a time of promise. That's right. And then maybe they're a little like the Mets in that, you know, mononucleosis is an actual disease that can have very harmful effects. Especially on the spleen. And yet it's treated as just a the joke. biggest punchline, yeah. maybe because of that graphic that had Sam Darnold staring at us like he was, uh, you know, he was intent on boring a hole for our eyes with his stare out indefinitely mono. Oh, God. He has great hair. Jet, you know, Darnold you has great ask, hair. You should ask Braylon Edwards about his time with the Jets and the Browns, because just like the Mets have the Cubs to always had the Cubs to always look at. Oh, look, at least we're better than them. I would say as long as the Browns are still an ongoing, unsuccessful entity, the Jets can never be the joke, the ultimate joke of the NFL, but fumbles notwithstanding. Now, there is a guy who knows about both of those things. Uh, Braylon or Mark Sanchez or both. Yeah, that's that's a good point, Rex Ryan. We've got a lot of those guys walking around these halls. I might bump into Mark <laughs> Sanchez and Rex Ryan any second. Mike Pesca is the host of the GIST podcast from Slate. And it's always a pleasure having you on the show, Mike. Thank you for having joined us. You're welcome. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Next week on HBO, the premiere of a new documentary series, 24-7 College Football. Four episodes this fall, starting with the Florida Gators on October 2nd, Wednesday night at 10 o'clock Eastern time. The following week, Penn State. After that, Arizona State. And then wrapping up with the Washington State Cougars, Wednesday, October 23rd. The executive producer is Bo Mattingly. And he joins us now. Bo, thank you for being with us. Jeremy, thanks for having me. Great to be with you. Bo, when I think of you, I think of radio. How did you get yourself into this situation? (laughs) That's a great question. For many years, I did uh, television and radio in the great state of Arkansas before that, some time in Florida, and just became more intrigued with the idea of storytelling and getting behind the scenes. And so a few years ago, we started producing some shows for ESPN and some others. And uh, earlier this year, we just went full-time in storytelling. And so as part of that, I uh, got with HBO and, and happy to be a part of this series that we're talking about today. So you're going to go in. I mean, everybody knows what 24-7 looks like. They know what Hard Knocks looks like. Uh, what's What was the elevator pitch here to HBO about these about this series? We knew HBO was looking for content, you know, doing less boxing. They've been you know, so involved in boxing for so long, and they really haven't done much with college football in quite some time. Obviously, hard knocks in the NFL is such a gold standard for access sports television. And the idea was, hey, let's show what it looks like for different coaches to prepare for a game with their team in the season. 
And every coach is different. They're unique. Every campus and tradition is unique. And the 24-7 brand and the Emmy Award production they've been, to be able to take that to college football, we thought would be a great marriage. And when we started talking to HBO, uh, Rick Bernstein and Bentley Weiner, uh, Peter Nelson, the crew there, uh, quickly captured the vision and we just began talking about what it would look like, who the programs would be, and rapidly got to a point where it looked like something we all thought would be amazing for sports fans and, and hmm. particularly college football fans. We're speaking with Bo Mattingly. He's the executive producer of the new HBO documentary series 24-7 College Football, which is premiering Wednesday night with an in-depth look at the preparations of the Florida Gators as they're getting ready to play Towson. Uh, and then we got Penn State the following week, then Arizona State, and then wrapping up with Washington State. So on hard knocks, you know, everybody knows there are these inflection points. So, you know, you've got cuts, it's built in. And, you know, you've got that, that drama. Uh, you know, there aren't cuts in college football. There are games. You talk about process. What were your concerns about finding moments that are dramatic enough to make viewers come back and pay attention when you're talking about, you know, middle of the season college football? You know, it's a, it's a different dynamic because you're, you're not getting cuts. Like you mentioned, you're um, also um, not waiting till the end of the season. Most follow docs have a component that you really follow the season. And then it comes out, you know, a few months later, and this is a quick turnaround. So what you're going to be watching on Wednesday night, uh, you know, October 2nd happened in the last few days. And, and so there's a lot of real time uh, drama that occurs just in following the daily lives of the people involved with these programs. You know, it's, it's uh, four different approaches with four different head coaches. All of them have unique things about them. Dan Mullen just changed quarterbacks. He's sort of a quarterback whisperer. If you think back over his career, he helped build Florida uh, with Urban Meyer into a national championship program. Florida has been trying to become that ever since Urban Meyer left. Dan Mullen's now back, and now he's having to take a number two quarterback and a couple of quarterbacks and win with them. Well, what does all that look like when you're a top 10 team uh, trying to win the SEC East and compete for a national championship as, as one example. But there are intricacies to each program that really give you amazing uh, moments. Uh, I think uh, every bit as good as what you'll, you'll find in Hard Knocks, even though this is a different show. One last question for you, Bo. Um, you know, a lot of people are looking at the Washington State show because Mike Leach is such a character. Uh, obviously, they had a catastrophe is not a word that really applies because it's just a football game. But in the context of football, it was catastrophic what happened against UCLA the other day. Are you shooting now with Mike Leach or are you waiting a couple of weeks and everybody thinks that's going to be a lot of fun? There were talks about doing a hard knocks, just Mike Leach, you know, that it was going to be a whole yeah. season of Mike Leach. Uh, um, how much time are you spending with Mike? So every team, it's it's pretty much the same. It's the it's the week leading up to the game. So it might start on Saturday, you know, finishing off the game, or Sunday morning, right after your last game, and then going through the game week, the preparation through the following Saturday. So we've spent um, a few days with each team, uh, 
preparing uh, in advance, uh, making sure that we you know where things are and, and what we're doing. And we've done some interviews and those types of things, familiarity. But the actual game week, we'll spend time with Mike Leach leading into his game against Colorado. And it, what, what is intriguing along the lines of what you're talking about, what, what I think is so fascinating is, is how Leach gets such quality play out of the quarterback position. Anthony Gordon, nine touchdowns the other night. And, and some of these guys you never hear of until they're on the field for Washington State and the receivers and the productivity. Well, we're going to be in the meetings, and we're going to see how Mike Leach conducts things. And it is so unconventional. It is so different than what guys like you and me are used to seeing in the, the hundreds of practices yeah. that we've been to in different programs around the country. For him to get the results in a completely different way is really the essence of this series, whether it's Dan Mullen or Herm Edwards trying to bring a pro approach to college football with, with now the help of Marvin Lewis and others. Uh, then, then, of course, uh, you got the guy we're talking about, uh, James Franklin, uh, and his motivation and, and the way that he's trying to return greatness to Penn State. I mean, just getting a peek behind the curtain preliminarily at these programs, I can't wait to see the finished product. Bo Mattingly is the executive producer of the new HBO documentary series 24-7 College Football, debuting next week inside the Florida Gators program as it prepares for the game this weekend against Towson. And then we've got Penn State, Arizona State, and Washington State, and Mike Leach, which we're all looking forward to. Bo, thanks so much for joining us. Good luck. I know you won't get any rest the next few weeks, but, uh, you know, um, get some good caffeine, I guess. Hey, it's a lot of fun, man. Labor of love. Jeremy, thanks for the time. All the best to you. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Joined now by one of our regular guests, particularly on the subject of soccer. He is a philosopher and he is the author of the book, What We Think About When We Think About Football, it's a pleasure to welcome back to The Sporting Life, Simon Critchley. Simon, thank you for being with us. Thank you very much, Jeremy. Nice to be back. Simon, uh, it was uh, a big week, at least in Milan. We saw, again, Leo Messi honored as the FIFA World Player of the Year on the men's side. We saw Megan Rapino win uh, the award for Women's Player of the Year. Uh, mm-hmm. w- when you think about Leo Messi now and the fact that he is, he is dominated – or co-dominated alongside Cristiano Ronaldo the last decade plus of the world's game and showing very little signs of uh, diminishing uh, capabilities. How do you make sense of that? Uh, Messi is an extraordinary player. What can you say? I mean, you know, it's um, he's a kind of an alien, and it's hard to imagine that he's it will end. You know, but I was in Barcelona last November doing uh, some football events and met a lot of Barca fans and you know they're getting ready for his departure that they know this isn't going to last forever but it's lasted a long time and you know obviously I would have liked uh, Virgil van Dijk to win the best player award but because it's you're hard Liverpool to argue fan. with Messi it's hard to argue with that I mean the the the, the man is extraordinary and it's um, it's the subtlety of his talent and the fact that he you know he does things you know, I always think Messi is the player of the, the playback, of the slow-mo replay, and then you see what he's done. You know, when you watch it live, you don't really see what Messi's done. You know, you, it's when you see him 
on the slow motion replay and you see how he made space, uh, how he, he did a certain run, laid the ball off, or you know scored from 30 yards with almost no backlift or whatever. He's a yeah, it's hard to argue with Messi getting an award, but I would have preferred it if it had been Virgil van Dijk, but not Cristiano Ronaldo. He's got enough awards. No, of course not. We're, we're speaking with Simon Critchley, the <laughs> author of What We Think About When We Think About Football. And and you mentioned uh, Van Dyke, uh, and you are um, a lifelong supporter of Liverpool. Yes, sir. Which, uh, you know, had a spectacular spring, of course, and we haven't spoken to you since then. You know, Liverpool is is one of those teams um, with a great history. It's almost the equivalent here in North America of, say, the Montreal Canadiens. Great history, in some yeah. ways an unrivaled history, certainly a much greater and grander history than even Manchester United before Alex Ferguson came along and kind of flipped the tables. But like the Canadiens, went a long time without reaching the pinnacle. What was it like to see your Liverpool team back on top? It's it's hard to describe. I was in Madrid for the Champions League final, and it was. I did have tickets to the game. I tried everything to get tickets for the game, but I flew in from. I was in Norway. My my son drove down from London in his mum's car, and we met in Madrid. And that day, you know, I made a promise to him when he was a baby that he would. He wouldn't have a choice. He'd support Liverpool Football Club. And, uh, you know, it would come good at a certain point. And we've never seen, we've never seen Liverpool win a major championship together. Mm. We've seen us lose a few finals. So to be together in, in Madrid with all of those fans, it was, it was, it was, it was astonishing. It was um, a Dionysian experience. It was a, an extraordinary pleasure. And, you know, to win the Champions League for the sixth time, to know that the team is back is well organized is um it, it, you know we there's questions you can raise about any football team but god we're impressive at the moment yeah, and we're yeah. top of the league six wins out of six and um you know we're playing against the, the, the yeah the best football team in the world which is manchester city so you've got to so the only way to win the English Premier League is with perfection, really. Uh, you draw, you lose, you're in real trouble. I mean, it used to be when Alex Ferguson was coached, he would say, well, United could lose six games a year, eight games a year, right. and still win the Premiership. With the level, of, the level of performance that Pep Guardiola has brought into the game, you just can't, you can't mess up anymore. So Liverpool are performing at that level, and you know, I hope it continues. It gives me great delight that's all i can say we're speaking with simon critchley whose book what we think about when we think about football was published in 2017 and simon before we let you go um you know one thing here in the u.s and i know you were over in europe during the summer as the women's world cup was taking place you know one thing uh we talked about here was uh the english team um it's it's excellence it, it's run at the women's world cup well 20 years ago, everybody knows the story of the 99ers here and what that team meant uh, to women's sports and the empowerment of women's sports in America. Um, the English team obviously didn't win this time, but it was a strong performance with a star player. How was, how was that, um, how was that team uh, celebrated and embraced in your native country? 
Um, I mean, very well. I mean, there's been a real, I think, you know, step change in uh, in women's soccer, and it's it, it's fantastic to see. And you know, Megan Rapinoe won the Best Player Award yesterday, and Jill Ellis too. And it's these, these are so there's been a real shift in the um, the perception of women's soccer, and also the coverage of it. The fact that you know, uh, you know websites that I'm in, you know, like The Guardian or whatever, will cover a lot of women's football as well as men's football. It's changing, and that gives me enormous heart. It's a question of how that um, uh, the international dimension to women's football is then replicated at the club level and becomes a kind of a solid uh, solid thing with big, uh, big crowds and is able to generate the kind of revenue that can begin to compete with the, the men's game. But I'm hopeful. I mean, but a word on the U.S. I thought that the in England, yeah, we did we did well. But the, um, I mean, the the extraordinary thing about the the U.S. women's soccer team is the is the aggression, mm. uh, the aggression and the the power of that team. And uh, I mean, they're a great team in the sense in which all great teams have got technical ability, you know, spatial awareness, they're well organised. But all great teams need that sheer aggression to, to dominate the opposition and, and England were just found wanting in that game America was stronger and wanted it more and technically superior so so it was it, it's, uh, it shifted the perception of, of uh, women's soccer is that going to have a, a knock on effect in um, women's club football hopefully I mean it's, it's getting there but we'll see and the other question here is you know what impacts uh, the success of the women's team will have on the the U.S. men's team, hmm. and uh, you know how that's going to how that's going to factor through. And I suppose the question I've I've always got here is the um, you know the plausibility of the MLS um, and the fact that you know, when I'm here and elsewhere in the U.S. and I'm talking football to people, yeah, they'll be watching some local stuff, but they're mainly watching the English Premier League, the Liga, Serie A, Bundesliga. And because with it, that's so well, you know, covered on on television now, you can keep up with that. So, I worry about the uh, the kind of infrastructure of the national game and how that's going to feed through to the uh, the national team and what success they'll have. Uh, the Premier League certainly takes up a lot of the oxygen in the room wherever yeah. you were talking about soccer. Simon Critchley's book, "What We Think About When We Think About Football," again is available now in paperback. Simon, it's always a pleasure, and uh, good luck. Uh, Good luck against Sheffield United this weekend. Good to talk to you again. This is The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio and the ESPN app. Our next guest had a legendary career at Michigan. He was an outstanding receiver in the NFL. He is the author of a new book, and the title really does say it all. Doing it my way, my outspoken life as a Michigan Wolverine, NFL receiver, and beyond. It is a pleasure to welcome to the sporting life the one and only Braylon Edwards. Braylon, thank you for joining us. Jeremy, thanks for having me. It's been a long time. It's been a long time since we've spoken. And and, and as you address in the book, Braylon, um, when people think about you, they don't just think about your talents as a receiver. They don't think about the big games, the uh, AFC title games or the Rose Bowls. They think about the controversies. Why, you you delve into them in this book. Uh, why did you want to, you know, uh, dredge all that stuff up? Because I think a lot of times 
you know, people don't get a chance to necessarily tell their story or what exactly happened. And so when things come out, it's more so what the perception is at the time. And then that becomes a story. And then over years, you know, that's what it is. It's right, written in stone. So it was a good time for me to be able to tell all the story in terms of every story from, you know, DUIs to incidents outside nightclubs with LeBron James, people, et cetera. There were other things at, at play in those situations, but I just chose to take the, you know, not say anything Let the media dictate, not the media, the media personnel for my teams dictate, Hey, it's an ongoing matter. And I got quiet and never said anything. And then those things never get a chance to, you know, get talked about. Plus, there's a lot of good things that happen, too. You know, there's a lot of philanthropic endeavors that have happened. There are a lot of things that happened off the field that were great. There are a lot of other things to talk about, too. You know, depression, bullying when I was a kid. So it's a, it's a heck of a story, and there's a lot of things I was able to, to put out there in the book. We're speaking with Braylon Edwards, the former Pro Bowl receiver, the former Michigan Wolverine star. He was the third overall pick in the 2005 NFL draft by the Cleveland Browns. In only your third season in the league, Braylon, you had 1,289 uh, receiving yards. You had 80 receptions. Uh, you were a pro bowler. You had some other good years, notably um, with the Jets in 2010, almost 1,000 yards receiving. Um, but your career didn't go the way you hoped it would. Um, and, and although you lasted much longer than most last in the NFL, you know you, you were someone who was um, thought of as a Hall of Fame talent. You know, there are injuries. There are other things that went on. Um, what was it like just being caught up in that maelstrom and and, and not being able to get every ounce of your talent to, to use every ounce the way that you would have wished? Uh, it was very frustrating. You know, um, a lot of times success is predicated on where you go in life, where you're, where you're drafted to, what team you play for. I was, you know, I drafted the Cleveland Browns and, you know, they played with injuries and uncertainties and continual, continual, uh, organizational changes, be it offensive coordinator, head coach, uh, ownership. Uh, you look at go to the New York Jets. They had a young quarterback, which they didn't trust. So there wasn't a lot of airing it out type there where you can go and have success. Then I had the knee injury with San Fran. I rushed back to the field to get out there because your know, hardball was kind of putting the pressure on me. And it was the first time I hadn't been in a stable situation. You know, when I got to San Fran, it was a one-year deal. There was no stability. There was no next year. There was no guarantee I was going to start. So when I got hurt, when I was starting, I tried to come back. I tried to rush back. The knee just never was the same. I played for Seattle. I could still feel the knee. I was getting cortisone shots. I'm like way too young at that time to be getting cortisone shots. So I tried one more time with uh, the Jets in 2013 and ligament, tore ligaments in my ankle in the preseason against uh, <clears throat> the Jaguars. And it just – it was time to stop. You know, I, I – I wish my career could have went differently from that standpoint. I wish I could have been one of those guys that got drafted in the end of the first round to the coach or to the, you know, to a team that was the Cowboys or to a playoff consistent team or a team that even just kept a consistent offense. Like, you know, <laughs> Cleveland, I had 17 quarterbacks in, in four and a half seasons. I remember. I remember all those guys. No one, no, I mean, it's hard to remember all of them, but I remember that there were a lot of them. Yeah. I mean, I mean, you know, we're speaking with Braylon Edwards and his new book is doing it my way. My outspoken life is a Michigan Wolverine NFL receiver and beyond. Braylon, before we let you go, um, it's great catching up after all these years, but Definitely. you know, you, you've been out in the news a little bit 
recently, um, you know, talking about your alma mater, talking about your former coach, Jim Harbaugh, and, and the words you've used, I think, are light years behind uh, that team in Columbus, Ohio, Ohio State. And um, uh, it's everyone's entitled to their opinion, and I would never discourage anyone from sharing their opinions, especially someone with the standing that you have. What makes you say that, though, other than the fact that Michigan's lost 14 out of 15 to Ohio State? Well, 14 out of 15 is definitely a great start. But, you know, in, in, the, yeah. in the space of the conversation, it was more so along the lines of, Ohio State has an identity that they stay true to. Over the last, you know, you can start in 2001 with Trestle. From Trestle to, uh, I'm right here. From Trestle to Urban Meyer, they still keep the same identity. They're going to have quarterbacks that can run, quarterbacks that can pass the ball short. They're going to have athletes at the wide receiver position that can take the ball and, and punch it in for them. They're going to have a great run game, and they're going to have a great defense. If you look at the teams over the last you know, 18 years, they all have the same identity, and that's how they're able to have success. In order to be a national championship team, you have to have – the formula is you need a defense that can play and win games. Defense still wins championships. But you have to have a quarterback that is arguably in the Heisman conversation that definitely should be first team all-conference. And you have to have a running back that is potentially – a second-round draft pick, or in a Heisman conversation. I feel like when you look at certain teams, Ohio State being one of them, when you watch them play, you see a team that you know has the potential to be there at the end of the year. When you watch Oklahoma, when you watch the Clemson, Alabama, Georgia, when you watch these teams, you see something that, okay, this is this is it. Even Penn State the year with Saquon, Gasicki, and uh, McSorley and those guys. When you watch Michigan, you have the same questions each year. Like, it's who's going to be the quarterback? Who's going to run the ball? Michigan hasn't had that that offensive stud. Like, last Michigan offensive stud was Denar Robinson. And Denar Robinson finished in 2012, 2013. And before that, you know, who's the other guy? You know, when was the last time you had the wide receiver, a playmaker, where it was like, this guy is just it. This is the the creme de la creme. Like, he's the one. So I don't mean to talk about my institution. Desmond Howard? I just read, okay, exactly, that's 1992. So, with that being said, I just, like, that's what it's going to take for it to change, and that's what I mean by light years behind. Like, Ohio State gets it, and they stay true. Like, we've been asking the same question of Michigan, and this goes beyond Jim Harbaugh. This goes to Brady Hope. This goes to Rich Rod. Every year, who's the quarterback? Who's the quarterback going to be? Who's it going to be this year? Like, it's always between three guys. It's never a guy. We're never moving the next season is never like, all right, this guy is coming back. We're really going to build around him. Even this year, it's like Shea Patterson, stat-wise, you know, percentage-wise, had an okay last year. But even this year, it's like, is Dylan McCaffrey going to be the guy? Is Joe Milton? Even 20 years ago when one of those guys was named Tom Brady, he couldn't get the job. Exactly. Is it Drew Henson? Is it Tom Brady? Is it uh, Scott Leffler, who's now uh, coaching in Bowling Green? So it's always a question, like, who's the wide receivers? Like, all right, they have these so. Those aren't questions at the major institutions that are winning. Those are not the questions. So I think and that's what I mean by light years. I know people hate to hear it. And I wish I didn't say it in that way, but that's what I mean. Like the identity has not been there. It's, a, it's tough love from Braylon Edwards for his beloved Wolverines. His new book is Doing It My Way, My Outspoken Life. 
and it is still outspoken, is Michigan Wolverine, NFL receiver and beyond. Braylon, uh, as I said, it's a pleasure catching up with you, and uh, congratulations with the book, and uh, uh, good luck with uh, selling as many as possible, as I like to tell the authors who come on the show. I appreciate it, Jeremy. Thank you. Maybe uh, we'll, we'll catch up and do a recap in, uh, around Thanksgiving <laughs> before the State game. I would love to do that. <laughs> let's do it. You're you're booked. <laughs> let's, do, let's, let's do it. Thanks for having joined us. I'm Jeremy Schapp, and this has been The Sporting Life on ESPN Radio. We're on every Saturday and every Sunday morning at 6 Eastern Time.